Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. Greetings to everyone and thank you for joining us tonight. Before we start, I want to remind everyone that the content of this podcast can be emotionally difficult for anyone, but especially triggering for survivors of trauma. You can find resource information for survivors on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We'll give you that address at the conclusion of the podcast. So now let's hear from another Dear Katie letter writer. This person wrote wrote to me after hearing me speak at their school and for the first time disclosing what happened to them um, outside, I think, from just her immediate family. Hi, I have an experience which I have kept to myself because I feel ashamed, but I'd like to tell it to you because I feel you can relate to me like no one else would be able to. A few months back, I went to a party at a boy's house, and I guess you could say I drank past my limit. I ended up passing out in a random bedroom at this house I was at. I don't remember anything, but when I heard the door opening, and I opened my eyes just a little, I remember seeing the light reflect off someone's glasses as they came in the room. I was a virgin, and it was something I was really proud of because I was one of the few left. But that night, it was taken away from me. I couldn't fight him off. I couldn't even try. I could hardly move. And the room was spinning out of control. I didn't remember what happened until the next morning. I was confused at first. I was wondering why I hurt so bad. I could barely walk. The worst part was that I was still at that house and I couldn't figure out who did it. Till I remembered the light reflecting off the glasses and I knew exactly who it was. Hopefully a podcast like this is going to help so many of us, whether we have blanks in our memories or not, we know that we do need support, we do need to feel not alone, and we do need to find healing and strength. So thank you for writing to me um, back all the way in 2003 for this, this Dear Katie letter. Today we are joined by another incredible, powerful survivor, Fern. Um, welcome, Fern. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey with us. If you could kindly give our listeners just a nutshell of who you are and where you're from. So I am Fern and I live in Canada and I am currently a university student. I'm in psychology. Um, I'm looking forward to pursuing a graduate degree in the near future. I really love spending time outdoors and portaging and doing all of those fun things. And that's a bit of the gist of me. (laughs) So Fern, fabulous. And um, I'm trying to envision you in nature and taking pictures of nature and or just breathing in the the space and place where you are. what brings you to your microphone today to share with our other survivors and supporters? It's really important to me to share my own story because it's very cathartic for me spreading this on this platform as well as just bringing light to the different things that happened in my situation and also how that may relate to other people who have experienced rape and sexual assault and knowing that they're not alone and knowing that I'm not alone. 
Um, beautiful. So can you narrate a little bit of when, where, and how this happened? So this happened at a party where I was seeing a friend that was in town from university and it was a national holiday. We were having a really good time. Um, and I was raped at this party when I was blackout drunk and I had no idea where I was or what I was doing. And I put my trust into the people that I was with. And unfortunately, that trust was taken away and I was not safe. And obviously I was, it was great that I was able to end up home safe at my parents' house, but the rape unfortunately happened. And I really did not have control of my own body and where I was or the ability to call someone to come get me. All of that was taken away. So I know this is probably very difficult for you to relate, but can you give us a little uh, sort of the timeline of what happened? You arrived at this party. What, what was the party like? This is in college and you're 18, 19, 20. What age are you? So I was 21 years old. I was just about 21, just reaching it. Um, at this party, it was the environment was really friendly. Like when I arrived there, everybody was so happy to see me. Everybody was in a great mood. It just seemed like a really good environment, and it was very inviting. Was it in a dorm room party, or in a dorm in a space in the dorm, or was it in the park? It was at a friend's friend's house. I didn't know the person who owns the house, but I knew the majority of the people that were there and I had been friends with them. So was it kind of the kind of party where it's pretty jammed and there's loud music and, and or was it more people sitting around in clumps talking to each other? What was that feeling like when you came in? Yeah, so it was really relaxed. It wasn't a big party. There wasn't a lot of people there. There was probably about um, 15, 20 people there. I don't think 20, but there definitely was a good amount, but it wasn't a whole big shindig. And let's just dig in, uh, Fern. I, I love our listeners to hear kind of the full thing. Um, so we have 20 people-ish. You ride by, walk, Uber, drive, how? So um, a family member actually drove me there. I was hanging out with him um, that night. Like family member, like uncle, cousin? So it was a cousin. Brother. Okay, cousin drops you off with a vehicle. What's your emotional state going in? So I wasn't nervous at all. I was pretty comfortable. I had gone to high school with these people for a very long time, and I was very comfortable with them. Initially, when I went to this party, I was like ready to have fun, ready to like reconnect with these people that I haven't spoken to in a while. And like I said in the beginning, everybody was very welcoming and it was a really good environment. I didn't get any bad vibes from it. And how out of the 20 some odd people, you know, all of them, some of them. So I knew most of the people except for, I think, three or four people. 
Okay, so for our listeners, we were going fern with like I walk in, I've been dropped off by a family member. This is a party I should be totally comfortable, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, so then go for it. What happens next? So we started having a few drinks. I was comfortable with my friends making drinks. I did not have any distrust for them. So I was having the drinks that they were making me and I was getting a little bit tipsy because it was a party and I was like, I'm going to have some fun. (laughs) And um, yeah, I just started like slowly having drinks. We were talking, we were chatting, we were having fun. We had plans to go to a club that night just to go and like listen to music and dance. That's what we love to do. Um, But at that point, it was just a good time. Everybody was excited to like celebrate the holiday and like see everybody (laughs) that we haven't seen in a very long time. And yeah. So you're starting to get a little tipsy, as you said. Um, When did you notice, was there a a point at which you noticed a shift in your, your perception or how you felt physically? Um, I noticed that I was getting tipsy, but the one thing that really set off that change was how my male friends were groping me and they were like picking me up playfully. I say that lightly. Um, And it was just a really weird thing. And I noticed that maybe they were getting a little bit drunk and maybe I was getting a little bit more drunk. But when they were doing these things, it was very uncomfortable and I kind of froze and didn't really know how to react. Do you, and there's probably no way you could really know this, but do you, in retrospect, do you think, do you wonder if if the proportion of drinking, if they or you had more drink, more to drink, like were you more drunk, do you think, than they were? Or was it sort of drunk all around? Um, I definitely noticed when we got to the club that I started to get very, very drunk and basically blackout at one point. But when we were still at the house, I noticed that I was tipsy. But I think like I'm a very small person. So I know that if I'm having very strong liquor, it can get to me very easily because I'm so small. So maybe that had something to do with how quickly I got blackout that night. I think I had roughly, I think, two shots maybe of like rum before we went to the club. That doesn't seem like that much, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I noticed when we did get to the club that I did have another shot and then maybe another drink, like a rum and coke or something, but... Like I said, I got blackout very quickly after we got to the club, so I don't really have that recollection. Based on on your own knowledge of yourself, is that how you? If, would you have reacted that way to that amount of alcohol in the past, or do you think? And Claire, like the more I hear from Fern, I'm the, on the same line. Like, yeah, that doesn't seem like that much. It, it seems like a little bit. I know you're a lightweight. <laughs> I know you're lightweight and you, you may not have had, but a salad with low cal dressing, <laughs> burn. 
I'm I'm envisioning, but it also sounds like someone may have put something in your drink and you, we don't know to this day, right? Yeah, I have no idea because at the end of it all, I did get a rape kit done. My blood test was done and I had a plethora of other tests done and they didn't really find anything in my blood so i don't know if i was drugged or not well it's hard to know because some of those drugs like club drugs have very short half-lives like 20 minutes yeah so you know they unless they actually knew to test you for it they you know and it would have had to be done very quickly most people don't positive for that stuff but even just drinking you know a, uh, not even a lot of in, within a short period of time can cause a reaction like that. But I just wonder, you know, if you're very tiny, okay, you know, but but still, or if you hadn't had much to eat that day, you know, that's mm-hmm. but it just feels kind of weird to me, you know, that, that you had you went blacked out with that, you know. Yeah, it was very strange because I have gone to parties previously, like post high school like exploring and stuff like that and I remember drinking like very very large amounts of alcohol because we're there to party we're young we're there to have a good time even if that means we're getting blackout because we're just young and I don't want to say dumb but we just want to experience life without the like prying eyes of our parents I guess and um, that night where I did experience this sexual assault I did not drink a lot. So I think, Claire, you're getting to a pretty good point. Okay, so we don't know the answer to that, but it does seem very odd. Okay, so you've gone to the, you you all did go to the club and you blacked out and then you got back to the, where did you go after that? Home or where? Yeah, so I ended up back at that house. We all took a cab home because I remember, well, sorry, we all took a cab back to this house. And I remember us walking into the house and I had thrown up in the cab because I was so blackout. My body was just expelling everything. And I remember walking into the house with assistance from one of the friends that I was initially messaging saying like, oh, like we should meet up and we haven't seen each other in a long time, etc and stuff like that and I remember when we got into the house I kept hearing someone say like get her showered like get her cleaned get her washed up and stuff I assumed I had like throw up on me but I wasn't aware because I was pretty much blackout and um, I remember someone taking me up the stairs I'm pretty sure it was my friend and I just blacked out again and then I was in the shower and I was face down um, and my head was on the drain and I remember I woke up because I was choking on the water that was pooling around my head that was blocking the drain and I realized I was being raped and I remember I twisted my torso and I turned with like the amount of strength that I had being blackout and I tried pushing this person off of me and I said no and this person verbatim said oh yes 
in a sexual way. And then I blacked out after that. And I remember waking up briefly and there was my friend dressing me. I was laying on the floor and I remember him like... Um, Fern, I I was listening and I'm sorry to interject, but you don't have just the guttural sickness in your stomach. You don't have just the swelling of your brain, this you know, two-story place you were in, you have also the sound of voices. And maybe we could just try really hard to help our listeners tonight, today, wherever you're listening, with how do we deal with the sound of a voice? Because my thought, Fern, is the next time I hear a voice that even sounds similar to my rapists or their supporters I'm triggered again um so may I ask first sorry for the long-winded but may I ask first do you hear the sound of their and or his voice and what is it what does it sound like dig in as much as you can so usually I feel um these moments coming on where I'm experiencing the trauma again in my mind. And I do hear this person's voice exactly how it sounded when the assault was happening. And as well as these people who were at the party saying, get her cleaned up, get her washed, get her showered. And no matter how hard I try, I will not be able to remove these voices from my head. Those mantras are, they're our own ghosts. Yeah. When we're talking really big on how do we overcome our trauma, we have to dig in really hard and deep on every one of our senses. And it's when I hear, to me, like you, I hear the voice of my rapist with a certain tonality, a certain suave, a certain accent. And then the second thing I picture is him saying it. I hear it and I picture it. And, you know, if that's the same for you, let's first talk about what that sounds like for you and then how you work to overcome it because it's an ongoing battle. So I usually experience these things through flashbacks and pretty persistent nightmares, even though this did happen um, quite some time ago. Um, I usually, to deal with these kinds of things in the moment, like the moment I wake up after I've had a very vicious trauma-fueled nightmare, I usually try to take some deep breaths and really ground myself but after this had happened I did get counseling I did do a lot of yoga I took time away from doing school and working because it was such a traumatic event I just felt dissociated from society I did not want any part of it I just wanted to be with myself and find myself again after that because I felt like I was not 
my own person anymore. I felt like this person had taken away so much from me. You know, you said when I'm feeling triggered, what's your method to rid yourself of that moment? So I really like to go on walks. So usually if I'm feeling very triggered, I try to go on a walk near the river or near a lake and just sit in the silence and really let it resonate out of me. I I like the silence and I like how it can be deafening. And that deafness, it really takes away that tightness in my chest and my fast heartbeat. And it's a, it's a really, really great thing that works for me. I like how you describe the feeling in your chest. I think probably a lot of people can relate to that. A lot of people take their tension and feel it in their chest and other people may feel it in their stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they do to sort of release that tension, um, the walks are a wonderful thing that can, a lot of people can find that, find that quite helpful. And do you like, do you, are you able to walk in nature or do you just take walks wherever you are? Yeah, I'm able to walk in nature, which is really, really beautiful. So there you are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, I feel like we interrupted your entire story, but Claire's going to navigate you through. That's okay. Last we left you. Last we left you. So I remember being dressed and then my friend picked me up like a firefighter and carried me out to the cab. And the cab took me home. And I remember miraculously being able to get into my parents' house. And I went up to my bedroom, fell asleep, and then woke up the next day and was like, what the heck just happened? Like I was sitting there and I was trying to process everything. So you remembered what you could remember. And then there were parts, obviously, you couldn't, but you did remember the debate. Yeah. Did you know who had done it? I, I initially thought I knew who had did it at the time. But now as time has moved on and some memories have come back to me, I realized that that probably wasn't the perpetrator. Like the perpetrator was probably someone that was a lot more closer to me. Really? Hmm. Yeah. How does that feel to think that you may be someone? So you think you know who it is, but you're not sure. You just think it's someone in your smaller circle. I feel like I know who it is, but I that's something that I've kept personal to me because I'm not at that point in my life, and I don't think I ever will be to expose this person because I'm onto so many new, bigger and greater things in my life and I don't need to reopen that. And I found my peace and my solace now, so. Did you tell anyone in your house that this happened or did you just, you know, what did you do? So my mom was outside and I remember I woke up and I immediately went downstairs and I went outside and I told my mom and I was like, I need to do something about this. I need to call the police or 
what have you, whatever it may be. And I remember I did call the police and the police did come and we spoke about it. What was that experience like for you? It was really weird because it was a male police officer and it seemed like he wasn't really comfortable with the situation. But um, it got even weirder because he told me to take him upstairs to my room and to like get the clothing that I wore that night when I was raped so that they could take it in for evidence. So that was really weird. I wasn't expecting that. He should have explained that to you, but I can see why he need to go with you so he could be sure that it's called a chain of evidence so that it goes direct, directly to him. Yeah, exactly. But I'm sure some people might find that bizarre. Yeah, it was, it was pretty awkward. <laughs> yeah. So you handed stuff over. You said goodbye to your clothes. Um, probably. Yeah. Yes. And then... So the police officer offered to drive me to the hospital to do the rape kit, but my mom drove me. And I remember I got to the hospital and I was so tired and I was so hungover because I, I was so blackout the night before. And I remember speaking to the sexual assault nurse and she was really, really amazing, <laughs> especially for the condition I was in when I got there. I was just so exhausted. And um, we had a bunch of tests done and she photographed my body where there were bruises and other marks and she assessed me she was really like intentively checking the sights if you catch my drift it was it was very uncomfortable yeah i'm sure it was you have to your body's the evidence essentially yeah i don't think anybody's prepared for that so you got through all that and then did they pursue an investigation, the police, or? Yeah, so they did. It was very short-lived. It was a few months. Um, I remember getting a call from the police saying that I need to go into the courthouse and talk to a few of the people there that worked for the court and... It was a really difficult conversation because essentially they were saying there was um, insufficient evidence and that I should just close the case and just wash my hands of it and go home. And what was their reason for saying they saying that? They didn't really say what evidence was missing or what evidence. Well, I guess they did say what evidence would be needed to take it more to court which was like things like videos of the assault or videos of you with the assailant and stuff like that but um essentially they just said we don't want you to go through this huge process where you're going to speak in front of all of these people and potentially see the assailant again and Basically, just go home and, like, don't put yourself through that. So they must have felt that they didn't have much of a case, generally speaking. Yeah. yeah. How did that feel? 
it felt really horrible because I remember sitting there and I was crying and I was saying to them as well as my mom that I'm not only wanting to fight for myself, but for other women who have been in my position and told that there's insignificant um, evidence and that this is just like, it's just going to be swept under the rug. So I was really, really, really upset that I couldn't really fight this for myself anymore. Did it feel, I mean, it sounded like you wanted to pursue this. You wanted to fight back in a way that, that validated not only that was on behalf in a way symbolically for other women, but also validated your own experience. Yeah, I I really wanted to fight for myself. But in that moment, I remember my mom telling me, like, Fern, you just need to, like, let this go. You need time to heal. You're in this situation now after what has happened and you're very vulnerable and it was really hard to hear that from my mom because I want my my mom is so strong and she's such like a hard ass and she's such a badass and hearing that from her I was like okay maybe I do need to you say your mom's supportive how why what what words does she use what did she do so my mom was really supportive in the way that she was taking me to all of these appointments. She was doing things like brushing my hair because I was so distraught. When someone brushes your hair, no one knows how cathartic that yeah. can be. I was in that point in time where I was so upset and I, I couldn't shower. I didn't because of the rape that happened. May, may, may I back up one more moment yeah. just for our listeners. When you trust your mom, what was it at the get-go that she did or said that cued you in, I trust you, I love you, I believe you? So at that point, I remember I was in getting the rape kit done and I had just had my blood taken and it was just me and the nurse in the room. And I remember I got so sick. I was just throwing up profusely. And I remember I said to the nurse, I was like, I need my mom. Like, my mom needs to come in here. Can you please get her? And I remember my mom rushing in and she was sitting there beside me, beside the toilet. And she was rubbing my back and she didn't really say anything, but that was the flash moment that I knew that like my mom was there for me no matter what. So it wasn't even words, it was her actions. Yeah. So thank you for going through this with, with us because I think we haven't had anybody describe this piece of the process really and, and um, how difficult it is. Um, okay, so they've told you that they're not going to pursue any kind of prosecution. They don't really, they're not going after anybody in particular. So you have to figure out okay, now what do I do, right? What, how am I going to heal from this thing? What was your expectation of the criminal justice system? Were you hoping that they would pursue it and that that would be a way yeah, for you to have I think closure? I was expecting closure through that sense, but I didn't really know what to expect with the criminal justice system and going through that process of charging someone that had assaulted me. 
So I definitely was blindsided by the process that I went through and the reactions I got from the police and the sheriff and all these other people that worked for the court. So then you had to find some other way to go forward. So what did you decide you were going to do? What did you decide to do next? So I was referred to see a sexual assault counselor, which I did see. And I saw these women for a few months. I thought that the few months was good enough for me at the time because I only wanted to retell my experience so many times without it being like (laughs) someone poking me with a hot branding steak. Um. But after that, I did, I started doing like a lot of yoga and just took a lot of time for myself. And so you found yoga to be healing. Yes. Did you, what else? And was that something, had you been doing yoga prior? No, I wasn't doing yoga before. I found a really great inclusive studio and I just explained to the women there. I was like, I just went through this whole experience. I'm looking for a space where I can be myself and I can feel safe in tight clothing like leggings and stuff like that and they really did deliver and I found a lot of solace in that yoga studio at the time for the few months that I did go that's that's amazing and so you had yoga what else did you do so I did start taking um, anti-anxiety medications because I noticed after the assault I really did not want to go outside. I did not want to be seen by anybody. I felt really dirty. I felt like if anybody were to lay their eyes on me, I just felt like they saw the sexual assault. It was just a very uncomfortable thing for me. So going on to the anti-anxiety medication really helped me take that actual step outside of my parents house at the time can you be specific about the kinds of spaces where you felt the most unsafe so I felt pretty unsafe in that city where my parents lived it was a small city but most of all it was near the downtown and the downtown area where the club was because I know that the people I was with that night they spend a lot of time in that area So if I were to go down there by any chance, even if I were to go to like the farmer's market on Saturday and Sunday morning, I would be afraid to see these people or for these people to see me and potentially do something because I did take it to the police. So the anti-anxiety meds were helping you. And now we're talking about how long has it been since the assault now? It's been about four years, I think. And has your anxiety subsided at all, or is it still is this still an issue for you? So anxiety is much better for me than it was after the assault. I still do experience it quite a bit, especially with um, the pandemic happening this past year or so. And the the pandemic has actually fueled the nightmares and the flashbacks quite a bit so the anxiety is definitely back in in full force but um the anxiety meds are helping and i'm with a really loving partner and 
he has seen all of sides of me. So it's really helpful. You've, you know, it's been a little bit of time. You now have a wonderful partner. Tell us how did you, you know, how did that happen? And, and how is that working out for you? So it's really, really good. We're um, living in an apartment together. We met a few years ago and I remember when we first started dating, I was, it was a year after the assault had happened and I was like, I don't really want to date, but this guy seems pretty great. And he seems like a really down to earth person. I was just drawn to him. So when we started dating, we were very open with each other and very transparent. And I remember I told him, hey, I had experienced this very traumatic thing. I want to take things slow. Friends first. If we can develop into a partnership, then that's great. And yeah, we kind of just took it from there. And now we're living together in a new city, going to university, doing all these amazing things. That's wonderful. It's wonderful news. And it's so good to hear that. And does he... How is he when your issues come up? I mean, does he? So it took some getting used to for him, especially when we first started dating, when things were still pretty fresh. Um, and he's gotten a lot better. He's so supportive now. And we have like our safe word when I'm having my really off days or even if I'm having like an off night or if I've had a nightmare, I just say, hey, safe word. I'm having an off morning, an off night, blah, blah, blah. And he does like all amazing things. <laughs> he'll like clean for me. He'll like do the laundry. He'll give me space if I need it. All of that good stuff. Oh, we're doing the laundry. That's a fantasy. <laughs> Thank you for Fern for sharing your journey, your story, your honesty, your truth, and all that you had to offer so many people. Oh my gosh, there's so much there. There's so much there, and you are so willing to share. Um, for our listeners, please join us again in a, another week for another episode of the Dear Katie podcast. We hope to support you and to honor your own stories. Um, Claire, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Katie. And again, thank you to our listeners for being present and um, hearing Fern's story tonight. Don't forget to visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and information about the legal support hotline as well. Just keep in mind that we're never alone. There are many walking with us in healing and in supporting survivors and in ending sexual violence. Again, this has been Katie Kessner on the Dear Katie podcast, joined by Claire Kaplan. Together in our support of all of our survivors like Fern, we shatter the silence and end the violence. So thank you, and we look forward to next week with you. <laughs>